These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she says, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Jacob because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved, excuse me, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I tell you, um, Nathan sneaks in songs sometimes, and I want to make sure that you pay attention to the songs that are in here. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Did you hear the fourth line that you sang, teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. Mm. Did you mean that? How can we mean that unless we know the God to whom we pray? That is what this text is about. And that's what we're going to see in just a minute. Would you pray with me as we go there? Father in heaven, we praise you for this afternoon. We praise you that you have called us together. We praise you that as Nathan sang, we understand that our salvation is bound up in each other. That our sense of community, our sense of identity, our sense of purpose, our sense of mission, our call to prayer, our understanding 
of the mind of Christ is bound up together. And so, Father, we wonder why in the world would you give your church preaching of your word? Why would you say, beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news to Zion, to your church? Why would you say that unless you intend to use your word to reveal yourself? Father, you know the hearts of the women and the men who are here gathered in your presence today. You know our desperate need on this first day of the week as we look with expectation or anxiety or apprehension into the week that is before us. And Father, you know what we need from you. Father, I pray according to your sovereign purposes that you would make yourself known to us through your word and that we would worship you. Father, I pray that in these next few minutes we would worship you by your Holy Spirit and according to the truth of who you are. Father, you have told us that as you reveal yourself in your word, it is through your word who became flesh that you have chosen in these last days to make the radiance of your glory known to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us the beauty of Christ even in this text of Genesis. Father, I pray for those who are struggling to believe today that you would reveal yourself. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with pride today that of course I believe. Would you undercut our pride with your purposes? And Father, for those of us who feel as if we are just barely clinging on, would you meet us and would you sustain us and would you draw us together to your word and your table and would you feed us from the bread of life, even from Jesus? We pray all of this together in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We've turned the corner from a summer of study of why did God reveal himself according to the covenant. The answer that we have given time and time again to that question is so that the nations of the earth would be blessed. The reason that God made himself known as a covenant God is for the blessing of the nations. We've turned from that study to this study, the study of Isaac and Jacob, not so much just for the historical accounts that are given in these chapters of the beginning of God's covenant people, 
but we've turned to them so that we might study, as we do every fall, more and more the character and the work of God as he reveals himself in Scripture. God says when, Abraham, or when Moses is about to go back to Egypt and tell the Israelites, hey, God has sent me to bring you out of Egypt to set you free, Moses says to God, but wait a minute, who am I supposed to say is sending me? And God says, you tell them that I am the God of their fathers, of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. <laughs> and here we get to study Isaac and Jacob. The question that we're asking is, who is this God of covenant? Who is he? So often in history, we read history and we say, who am I? Right? I was talking with one of you recently, and I have come across a book, and the title of the book is Born Fighting. Now, it was written by a politician, and I'm not arguing any of the politics that he talks about, but he's talking about people in a section of the United States. And as I read the book, I thought to myself, now I understand who I am. <laughs> Those are my people. That's who I am. And in a sense, when we read this account of Genesis, we ought to be able to say as people of faith, as the church, if you are wondering what Christians are like today, and you read these stories about Isaac and Jacob, you ought to say, we ought to say together, these are our people. You know, for better or for worse, these are our people. But more importantly, this is our God. This is our God who is revealed in these verses. Very quickly, Genesis is divided up into ten books, all right? And the way that you would recognize the beginning of each book in your English copy of the Bible is that it says in various places, these are the generations of. You heard me read that in verse 19, right? The first is in chapter 2. These are the generations of heaven and the earth. The second is, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Noah's sons. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Terah. These are the generations of Ishmael, which precedes our passage today. And then now we see these are the generations of Isaac. There'll be two that follow, the generations of Esau and the generations of Jacob. This is how the book is broken down. But in each of those breakdowns, the theme that ought to be asked is, what do we learn about the character and the work of God? Specifically, the God who reveals himself as the God of the covenant. This eighth book is about two boys. Now, the reason they play so much with their names in those verses that I read to you in verse 19 and following is because you're supposed to think about this as the boys who have the nicknames, all right? And here are the nicknames for the boys for us today. Harry and Trip. That's who they are. Harry and Trip, right? That's how they're named. Esau comes out, and he's red and hairy all over. So they call him Harry. That's what Esau means. Jacob comes out, and he's grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. That's why they call him Trip, right? He's going to trip him up. That's what the names Jacob and Esau mean. But it's through their lives that we learn not just about who they are, but who God is 
as he interfaces with them. And the theme of today that you're going to see twice worked out is that God's divine purposes are not thwarted by human attempts to take control. Listen, I'm going to say it one more time. Here's a theme of what we ought to be thinking about. What do we understand about who God is? God's divine purposes are not thwarted by human attempts to take control. We've got two stories. The first story is about God's choice of which of these sons the promised line is going to go through. And I really think that this story is aimed at the older generation in the church. We see it in Isaac and Rebekah, but it's not just parents. It's anyone who is proclaiming the name of Christ, the name of the God of the scriptures to anyone else in the church. It's focused there. The second is to all the siblings of the church. And that's not just to you young ones. It's to all of us old ones as well, brothers and sisters. It's to us. And how we are supposed to understand that God's divine purposes are not thwarted by human attempts to take control. Look at the first story with me, if you will. The first story starts in verse 19. And you saw how it started. These are the generations of Isaac, right? This is the beginning of that book of Isaac. The context that this book begins in is a context of conflict. I want you to look at it. It's suffering in this world. Does that relate to anything that's going on in your world? Is the context of your needing to know who God is the context of suffering? If so, hey, this might be applicable. We understand suffering in the Bible as world and flesh and the devil. Now we have the world and the brokenness of it and the flesh. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, we are told that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's deceptive to read that verse alone without the context of the whole story that's right there in those five verses. Because between verses 20 and 26, we understand that Isaac and Rebekah were barren for 19 years. Lord, teach us the patience of unanswered prayer? Do we mean that? We see Isaac in the beginning of his marriage crying out to God, going to God and begging him, praying. And in one verse, we go from Isaac praying to Rebekah being pregnant. What do you do about these seasons of unanswered prayer? Do they teach us trust? That's not the only conflict that's here in this story. Verse 22, Rebekah says this, and any of you who have been pregnant, I've never been pregnant. Mita's favorite story is that one time we were sleeping and Mita was pregnant 
and the baby was kicking in Mita's back, stomach and it kept hitting my back. And I was like, baby, could you, could you just roll over? And she looked at me in the middle of the night and she goes, you are kidding me, right? Like it's in me and you're complaining because you're getting kicked, right? In verse 22, Rebecca is speaking and it says that the children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is this way, why is this happening to me? Maybe one commentator has said the best way of understanding this is that the children were trying to crush each other inside of Rebecca. And Rebecca also cries out to God and says, What is happening in me? Right? Does your experience of conflict in this world, of unanswered prayer, of suffering, drive you to God in prayer? To trust in him? Or does it drive you to silence? The content of this story is this oracle of God in verse 23. The content is right there. God's word. Rebecca goes to God. We don't know where, but Abraham... And Isaac went to God to altars, and God made himself known there. And so she goes to God and cries out to him. And God tells her this oracle, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This oracle has two things to look at. One is two are in her, not just one. And right away, it forces a decision on Isaac and Rebekah, right? Abraham and Sarah didn't quite have that same option. They had none. And it didn't mean that Abraham didn't have children. In fact, at the very beginning of chapter 25, it lists all the children that Abraham had by one of his wives named Keturah. But she was not the wife of promise. She was not the one that God said that he was going to be gifted with children from. But here we see Isaac and Rebekah, not with none, but with an abundance. And isn't it the case that sometimes in the midst of such great abundance, we are challenged the most to believe in God's purposes. The focus of this oracle is that the older will serve the younger God's divine purpose in choosing a person will upset human tradition, logic, and wisdom, right? That's what he's saying. That's where the oracle really has its oomph. The older is going to serve the younger. Isaiah 55 reminds us that God's ways are not our ways that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are God's thoughts than our thoughts, his ways higher than our ways. But here, in this context, we have the response of Isaac and Rebekah. Look at verse 28. It says in verse 27, the boys grew up after they were described as to how they were born. We've talked about that. Verse 27 says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And then in verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. 
but Rebekah loved Jacob. There are particular verses in the scripture that ought to make your heart sink. And this is one of them. This is a crushing illustration of favoritism. Favoritism in this family to whom the oracle of God had been spoken, the word of God had been given, God's purposes had been revealed. And yet Isaac chooses one, Esau, and Rebekah chooses another, Jacob, and loves them. It didn't have to be that way. They could have prepared the boys with humble reliance upon divine grace that God had revealed what he was going to do by using the younger to advance the promises of redemption instead of the older. And that they, these boys, ought to engage with God with humble reliance. But that's not what happens. God's relentless grace accomplishes his purposes despite human opposition which leaves scars and consequences. That's what we see in this family. Scars and consequences. We see Isaac in just a few chapters determined to bless Esau instead of Jacob. And we see Rebekah determined that Jacob would receive the blessing even so much that she deceives her husband. And we'll get there. But in this section, we see God's divine purposes are not thwarted by human attempts to take control. What are we supposed to understand as the older generation of God's people? Listen, what is God's covenant word toward us? Children, we are not saying that God has told any of us parents that the older is going to serve the younger. That is not the application in this, all right? So those of you who all who are older and younger, don't worry. That's not what this is about. But God's word has told us that you children belong to God, that you have been bought with the blood of Christ, and that you belong to him. But do you want to know one of the false things that we parents say in an attempt to control situations? You children can do anything that you want to do. And children, it's not true. And parents, and the older generation of the church, teachers, mentors, this is not true. Because we know that God has purposes for our lives. And we ought also, we ought rather to tell each other and to tell our children, God has plans for your life. What if instead of choosing, Isaac and Rebekah had taught their children humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit? that this truth of Jeremiah 29 is true for them. God has plans for your life. We say, hey, that's going to hold us back. 
If we say we can't do anything we want to do, really? One of the vivid memories that I have, my first year as an RUF campus minister at Harvard, was a young woman that came up to me, and I talked with her, and she was from a Christian family, and I asked her, I said, you know, what is one of the verses that's a real anchor for your life? 18 years old, the world is her oyster, as we would like to say. And she said, it's Jeremiah 29. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. God's divine purposes are not thwarted by humans' attempts to take control. We see the implications of that in this first story, but I want you to look at the second one with me. The second one focuses on siblings, brothers, brothers and sisters. In one sense, all of us as the family of God. It is the same theme. God's divine purpose is not thwarted by human attempts to take control. What is the context? Again, the context is conflict, isn't it? In verses 29 through 34, the boys are renamed for us. Esau is called Edom. What does that mean? His name is Red. Did you guys ever know anybody named Red? I bet Newton and Wellesley, you know no one named Red. But on the back of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, I knew the man named Red. And Jacob's name here would have been Weasel. This story is about Red and Weasel, is who this story is about. And here we see in this conflict, further conflict as dependent human beings. Esau comes in from a hunt, we're told, and he's exhausted. He has human dependence, and he looks to his brother. This idea of our dependence and our need for one another is actually part of creation. We are made to be dependent by God's design. We have to eat. That is a good thing. But here in this story, in the conflict, dependence is used as a tool for oppression. The result of Jacob's determination to be self-sufficient. What's the content of this story? The content of this story is a birthright. How do we understand birthright? It's the right of the firstborn that was given. In Deuteronomy 21, we're told that when a father has multiple sons that all of the property of the father are divided by the number of sons. And then the first son is given two shares. So what does that mean in this story? In this story, it means that everything is going to be given to the one with the birthright. Everything. Not just some of it, but all of it. The content of this story is birthright. The response of Jacob to his brother is in verses 31 through 33. Listen, Rebekah loves her son Jacob. It is highly unlikely that Rebekah, the mother, did not tell Jacob, her son, the oracle that had been given to her. And then when you read this story in light of chapter 27, when Rebekah encourages Jacob to deceive his father to get the blessing, we understand that Jacob, the weasel, has decided 
not to demonstrate faith in this situation, but to grasp the fulfillment of getting what is his. He takes advantage of Esau. And he takes advantage of Esau's hunger and exhaustion. What about Esau? How does Esau respond in this situation? In the situation of this family, one loved by the father and the other loved by the mother, this family that has been divided in this sense by this favoritism, Esau has gravitated in his own consciousness to immediate gratification. Esau would have failed the Stanford marshmallow test far and away. He would have failed it. That test where you put a marshmallow in front of a little kid and you say to a little kid, hey, if you won't eat this marshmallow for X amount of minutes, I'll come back and give you two. No way Esau would have made this. Esau was into immediate gratification. And we see that Esau engaged with Jacob. Jacob said, Esau, I see that you're starving. And Esau said, please, would you give me some food? And Jacob said, no. First, you sell me your birthright. You say that everything that dad has is mine. And Esau looks at Jacob and he goes, I'm dying.